Lord, we come to you today asking for your help, desiring to to move along in the process, Lord, of becoming more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Lord, we ask that you would teach us. We ask, Lord, that you would shape us through your Word. Give us hearts that are humble. And uh, Lord, may you uh, allow me as your messenger, Lord, to be faithful to your truth and to preach, Lord, for, for the love of the brethren and for the glory of God. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to ask you a question this morning as we begin, and the question is this, what happens when a baby doesn't grow? What happens when a baby does not grow? Well, some of the answers could be it needs continual care. Why? Because it hasn't grown. It hasn't developed. It will have difficulty solving problems. It will always be dependent on you to come and change its diaper, to give it food, whatever it might be. It will have limited joy without developing strengths and the use of arms and legs and hands and tongue. So it won't be able to enjoy the things that maybe are there for it because it just hasn't developed those things. It will selfishly demand attention. Anyone that's had a baby knows what that's like. Lots of screaming, lots of tantrums. It can only have indirect service. In other words, where other people are able to serve it. And friends, it's truly sad when a baby doesn't grow. But what's even sadder is that when Christians stay as babies, and they don't grow. And there's a lot of similarities. They too will need continuous care. They too will have difficulty facing and solving problems. They too will have limited joy because they haven't developed habits and disciplines in their lives that give them freedom to live their life as God's children. They too will selfishly demand attention. They too will only have indirect service. Others having an impact on them. Now don't get me wrong. We want babies in our church. But what we don't want is babies to remain as babies in our church. We want to see them grow. As Also, as we think about this, there will also be spiritual defeat. They won't know how to grow spiritually or that they can change. They they will experience guilt and they won't know what to do with it. They'll experience hostility. They'll face problems because they're, they're facing life according to their flesh and not according to the Spirit. They'll experience division. Division among the brethren because they have not learned to hold every thought captive or to tame the tongue. They'll be depressed. They'll struggle with all that the world throws at them to the point that they'll just want to give up. This is what happens, friends. But friends, God has called all of His children to grow. Jesus is our example, isn't He? Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and men. We're commanded to grow. Scripture tells us that. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're called to, to grow to be like Christ. And we're called to avoid problems by learning how to deal with those problems from God's Word. So this morning, I, I want to present to you a proposition. We're going to work through some things that will set up our time in Ephesians chapter 4. But here's the proposition. Disciples are called, and get this, to actively pursue growing up to become more and more like Jesus Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, from a variety of passages of Scripture, we can come to the conclusion that we are called, that you are called to actively pursue growing up to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Now there's plenty of passages in Scripture that teach us and compel us as Christ's disciples to grow up in Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What we learn there is that although our conversion is all God, monotheistic, our sanctification is God working and us working. We're not passive participants in it. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we all are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This is what happens when you're a child of God and you are pursuing maturity. You are being changed. You are more to, uh, metamorphosizing into something. So the process of Christian growth is called progressive sanctification. Here's a couple of definitions I I, I pulled from that I think are helpful. The first one by Andy Nacelli. Progressive sanctification is the ongoing, incomplete, lifelong maturing process in which a Christian gradually becomes more holy. All right. Wayne Grudem says, sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin, and more like Christ in our actual lives. Now friends, this is what needs to be happening in the heart of a disciple. Now just to make sure that we understand what we're talking about, I briefly want to just uh, draw your attention to the screen. We're going to talk about just quickly four I want to say dynamics of salvation. We'll make sure we understand where the categories are. Okay? First of all, you are called to be saved. We call that election. This is what God does in drawing you to Himself. It's God's plan of bringing us to Christ in eternity past. That's number one. Number two, you have been saved. This is justification. It's a, it's a, it's a single point in time. It's the moment of your salvation. You're moved from darkness into light by virtue of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Number three, you're being saved. This is sanctification. 
This is over time being set apart to Christ. And then ultimately, you will be saved. This is your glorification. This is when you enter into heaven. You long for that day. But what we're talking about today is number three. Our sanctification. And understand this, our sanctification doesn't start sometime after our justification. Our sanctification starts at the moment of our justification. So at the moment of your conversion, Jesus Christ is your new master. He's always been Lord, but now you're submitting to him by virtue of your conversion. You have been declared righteous, declared holy in him, and it's your job now to become more and more like Jesus Christ. It's not a second thing that happens as far as time is concerned. This this happens at the beginning. So it begins with our justification, and then it continues on until we're taken up to glory. So this is the category. This is the arena that we're seeking to discover what God is calling us to do as his disciples. Now, this might be a little confusing. Because I'm sure in this room, we've all come from different sorts of backgrounds under the big tent umbrella of Christianity, and we have experienced different views of what sanctification looks like. So we want to take some time to talk through some of what I'm calling the faulty views of sanctification. We'll begin with what I'm calling Catholicism. Now, it really is describing Churches like the Catholic Church, you can say the Orthodox Church too, right? All those different forms of that, where works result in the infusion of grace. Let me explain what's going on here. You might have an experience where you're welcomed into the church, but you have not yet been declared righteous. You have not yet been declared holy. There's still work for you to do. And so now your life in this new relationship is doing certain things that the church requires. For example, going to confession, taking mass, um, all that kind of stuff, right? And each time you do that, you get an infusion of grace that ushers you a little closer to that place of maturity. You with me? So your whole life then is this, this process of trying to get there. And of course, what happens in the Catholic system is you don't typically get there. And when you die, you have to go to this place called purgatory that, again, you have to work your way out of. Someone else has to do the work for you. Now, you see the bondage that you're in there because you are not declared justified. And some of us come out of that context and we we come into Christianity, true Christianity, and we're functioning in our minds in this kind of sanctification system. Now, friends, one of the things that we need to be reminded of, because so many people come out of Catholicism, is that everything relating to your eternal relationship with Christ has been accomplished through Jesus Christ. You have been declared righteous. You have been declared holy. If you're a child of God today, you will never be more righteous, more holy than you are right now, as far as eternity is concerned, as far as your salvation is concerned. Why? Because it's not about what you've done. It's about what Christ has done for you. You, as a child of God, are clothed in His righteousness, His holiness. So Catholicism gives us this 
distorted view of sanctification. Secondly, what I'm calling perfectionism. Perfectionism came out of Wesleyanism, so that would include the, the Nazarite church or Nazarene church. Um, often um, uh, Wesleyans would embrace this, but it's basically this, working hard in your spiritual disciplines in love and faith. If you do that, you will be ushered into a state of perfection here on this earth. Okay? So you're, you're saying, through the disciplines, I will arrive at a state of perfection. And you can actually go and talk to people that are in those systems, and some of them will say, you can ask them, are you, are you perfect? Yeah, I, I reached perfection back in... Which means they are no longer sinning in their mind. But this is a view that's saying, if I'm just plugging myself in these disciplines, pop, this is what's going to happen. And oftentimes there is a... There's this huge spiritual experience that kind of ushers them into that arena. Now, there's also, number three, a modified perfectionism that is far more rampant. Um, and it simply is this, pursuing multiple spiritual experiences that will usher me into a state of perfection in this life. You see that a lot in the Pentecostal apostolic charismatic churches. Now, this is the context that I grew up in, didn't come to faith in, but I grew up in. My family were charismatic, and my father ended up being a pastor. Um, so I understand this kind of world uh, pretty well, having grown up in it and seeing it. The goal is always looking for the next spiritual experience. Now, this spills over, though, not just into the Pentecostal charismatic realm, but into the general church at large, where people are striving now for the next spiritual experience. So the reason you go to a conference isn't so much to learn, but it's to experience, hoping that through that experience, you're going to be ushered further, kind of up this ladder to maturity. You go to some big worship celebration and you're feeling it in the Holy Spirit, man. You can, you can just touch him. You just reach out and grab him, right? Ah, oh, man, I had that experience. It just popped me up some more. So this is where all this stuff comes from. But friends, that's not what Scripture teaches. We're not ushered to the place of maturity through multiple spiritual experiences like that. I put that in air quotes. All right, number four. Legalism. See, legalism is attempting to be holy through performance. Now, I know there's a bunch of people in this room who struggle with legalism. Because I is one bunch myself. Can, grew up in that context, came to faith in that kind of context, right? God will look at my long prayers and my healthy Bible reading and my church attendance and my fasting and my service and my giving and my clothing and my length of hair and all that kind of stuff, he'll look at that and say, aha, well done. <laughs> I am pleased with you. And it's this burden, and this really isn't about my relationship with the Lord, but it's all about checking off the boxes and showing that I've accomplished these things and somehow God look at me. Is this sufficient? Now, I listed a bunch of things that aren't necessarily sinful. They're actually good. Is church attendance good? I hope so, because you're here. Is reading your Bible good? Absolutely. 
But if you think that doing those things, that somehow God is up there saying, okay, well done, well done, well done. Oh, well, you didn't do that. You prayed, but it was only for five minutes. I'm sorry, but it's going to be a rough week for you. See, this is the mentality we have. We've got to perform in order to please God. It's legalism. The next one is similar to this, but I think it was worth at least identifying, and this is conformity. Reaching maturity takes place when you conform to the system of beliefs, behaviors, and practices of an institution. That could be a church, it could be a university, it could be a denomination. But I'm going to conform. I have the same haircut as everyone else. I have the same Bible as everyone else. I have the same suit as everyone else. I have the same dress, the same traditions. And it also often embodies the the King James Version verse where the church is called to be a peculiar people. We're going to champion being peculiar, but not in a biblical sense, but in a worldly sense. But hey, I've conformed. This person's a godly person. Why? Because they're playing the part. They're dressed the right way. Their hair's the right way. Their practices, their behaviors, all fit into what is acceptable in the institution. Okay, I must be a godly person. I must be mature. But all you're doing is conforming. Okay? And this last one, I think, is also pretty prevalent, too. Distorted grace. Are we saved by grace? Absolutely. But here's the argument. Now that I'm saved, I have my ticket to heaven, so it really doesn't matter how I live. Is that true? If you read your Bible, you can't come to that conclusion. (laughs) God cares how we live. God cares how disciples grow. In fact, you say, you must grow. You have to grow. But friends, these are distorted kind of views of sanctification. And you can be in a context where these are present and still have a genuine relationship with the Lord. I'm just saying, these these can be oppressive. These can divide to, here are the mature, here's the immature, here's the good people, here's the bad people. But friends, let's think here a little bit more about what progressive sanctification is. Because a lot of these ones are looking for sanctification or solutions that are easy and instantaneous. Now, who wants easy? Anyone here? Who wants instantaneous? Right? But that is not what God calls us to. True progressive sanctification requires work in the heart over time. Let me just mention again this definition. Progressive sanctification is the ongoing... Incomplete, which means you in this life will never reach full maturity. Why? Because you still will be struggling with sin. So it's incomplete. It's a lifelong maturing process in which a Christian gradually becomes more and more holy. So can can an experience be a mechanism of God showing you something that is helping you to make progress in your Christian life. Absolutely. But it's not the experience. The experience is the means by which God is steadily over time nurturing down the path 
to becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. And friends, what that should do is it should cause us to relax a little bit and to pursue some things together. Now, there's a chart up on the screen, and I just want to explain this a little bit. I'm sorry, this is old school images, okay? This is not contemporary images. This is old stuff that I've used before. But I want to use this before we actually get into our text today. See, here's the thing. The, 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 the cross represents the moment of your salvation. Okay? And then, of course, the goal is to be in heaven. But the red lines, these are all the habits and thoughts and behaviors that you and I bring into our Christian life. I mean, we come into our Christian life and say, okay, you know, all things will be made new, except the new now is tainted with all the stuff that I'm bringing into this new life. I'm dragging them with, it, with me. I have this big, huge bag of stuff that are habits of thinking and behavior that are part of my past life that now over time, by God's help, through the Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit and my humility and obedience to what God says, I am slowly taking off to become more and more like Christ. You get the picture there? This is, this, is, this is what we're called to. The reality is we have sinful habits that we bring in from our old life. Now, let me ask you a question. Are those old sinful habits paid for? Of course they are. Let me ask you this. Let's use another analogy. A couple gets married. They're looking at each other starry-eyed. They're declared married by the pastor. They are now in a state of marriage. And both of them are bringing old habits into their marriage. Right? They're newly married, but they're bringing stuff into the marriage. And now they have conflict. It's new conflict. But the conflict as, as a result of these things that are being brought into the marriage, the fact that they have conflict doesn't mean that they're now unmarried. They've been declared married. But now, as a married couple, the individuals in that marriage are working at stripping away these old bad habits so that they can work together as one flesh. And all these habits and behaviors and simple things we bring in, if they're left there, if they're reinforced, they're like bricks that are creating a wall between the couple. And so in the spiritual life, God is saying, look, you have all these habits of behavior you brought into Christian life. Your job now is brick by brick, allowing me to show you what's there so that you can remove that brick and you can begin to pursue this relationship with me. It's all paid for, but there's still a presence of sin or the implications of sin that now hinder this relationship. Okay? Now, with all that background, it's my introduction, all right? We're going to kind of charge our way through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. It's not going to be um, looking at every weed and bush, but we do need to kind of set some things up here in Ephesians. Paul has been carefully laying out what God in Christ has done for his church, for us. He's chosen us, he's predestined us, he's redeemed us, he's given us an inheritance, he's sealed us. We were 
dead in our trespasses and sins, and God has made us alive together with Christ. And then in Ephesians 2, verse 10, we're told this. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And it says four good works. But then we get to chapter 4, and there's a shift of emphasis. And the shift of emphasis is now saying, look, this is what Christ has done for you, but now this is what you must do. You need to walk in a manner that is worthy of your calling. In other words, your life should reflect the fact that you are a child of God, that you're a saint rather than a sinner. And that brings us then to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. And in this passage, Paul instructs us how we are to pursue our sanctification. And what is, he's answering really the question what does it look like to be growing up to be more and more like Jesus Christ in a practical way? And we're going to find there's, there's some, something you need to stop doing, there's something you need to start doing, and there's something you need to continue to do. So let's begin now. At verse 17, stop living like a sinner. He's speaking to believers. And this is what he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Who's he writing to? The Ephesians who were Gentiles, <laughs> right? Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So Paul here is saying to us, because we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus, we need to stop living our lives like we did before we came to Christ. Why? Because the lifestyle of the Gentile, the lifestyle of the sinner is one of futility. Now futility has the idea of emptiness, being without aim, void of substance. It describes the kind of thinking that fails to produce the desired results. It never succeeds. It never satisfies. And it pictures a man who is consumed with the pursuit of goals that are selfish or the accumulation of stuff that is ultimately temporary or the finding satisfaction in what is intrinsically deceptive or disappointing. See, the unbeliever plans and resolves everything based on his own thinking. Therefore, he becomes his own authority. And he follows his own authority to its ultimate outcome, and that's Futility, it's emptiness, it's aimlessness, it's meaninglessness. This is what Solomon told us about experiencing in this life. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and verse 26, but the end is vanity, striving after the wind. See, the expression in the futility of their minds is the overall general condition of their hearts. But the question now is, how did they get to this place? What is the origin of their empty, futile minds? And the answer is given to us in verse 18. There's four descriptions, but I want you to notice 
It's not the first three, really, that's the focus. This all goes down to one statement in, chapter, in verse 18. It says, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their what? Hardness of heart. See, feudal living has hardened its heart against God. That's the source of it. It's stiff-arming God. It's saying no to God. It's saying, I don't want to hear you. I don't want to accept you. I don't want to acknowledge you. Now, the, the word here, hardness, perosis, which comes from the word poros, which originally meant a stone harder than marble. This is where we get the expression, a heart of stone, right? It just doesn't have any, you can't have an effect on it. It's unwilling to, to yield. It's unwilling to respond to God's truth. That ultimately continues to produce ignorance. Now these obviously were not savages. They weren't brainless people. They were, you might want to say, academically smart and by the way, this is one of the, the fallacies of the world that we live in. They look back in, in time and say, oh, these people were really ignorant. It's amazing how smart people were thousands of years ago. They were smart, but they were ignorant. Why were they ignorant? Because they didn't have the view that God wants them to have. Because their hearts are hardened to Him. And that then results in being alienated from the life of God Ultimately, eternal death. This is why he says you are, we're dead in our trespasses and sins before we come to Christ. And ultimately, they are in spiritual darkness. They have no capacity for spiritual truth. Now friends, that's who we were before Christ. But he goes on and says not only is there the source of futility, but there is the fruit of futility. They become callous, which then results in sensuality. And they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Let me just kind of wrestle with this with you together. Within the framework of the Greek society, their behavior would have been quite normal and acceptable. This kind of attitude, these kind of sensual things. In the same way, 21st century Society dictates its own moral norms, usually by consensus opinion. Again, why is science being thrown out the window? Because science is not helpful when we want to do what we want to do. What we want is to pump the airwaves with consensus opinion, and when you don't agree with consensus opinion, you're canceled, you're ignorant, you're foolish, even though you're standing on science. So how does the world feel about the sacredness of the covenant of marriage? What about the rampant immorality and adultery that we see around us? What about the discipline of children? Or how to be a, a good and faithful employer or employee? What about lying and stealing and anger and filthy language? Friends, the new Sin is to be in opposition to the cultural norms. To be politically incorrect. 
to be on the wrong side of history. Oh no, I'm on the wrong side of history. Right? This pressure put on us to value honesty and integrity in all situations. It's a sin to think differently about what the world holds dear. To lovingly and courageously stand for God's truth rather than the fleeting passions of the world around us. It's considered a sin. That's why Paul says in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to what? This world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now friends, it's easy and sometimes it's natural if we're just being passive in our Christian walk, to drift back to the old habits, and the ways that we think, the way it was before we came to Christ. And especially in a world that is pummeling us, trying to shape us into its mold, we can just kind of give in and give up to some degree. And what Paul is saying right at the beginning here is, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's saying, stop, stop, stop living like a sinner. And then he goes on here and he says, start doing something. Start living like a saint. Now by the word saint, we're not using that in our, I don't say cultural context, contextual way where we we think we're above everyone. A saint is simply describing someone who was a follower of Christ. This is why we have the, the leaders in the church who are supposed to be equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, right? Not because the saints are a special kind of higher. This is just God's children. And notice what he says. But that is not the way you learned Christ. The way that he's just described. This is not what you've, this is not the way you learn Christ. When I, when I read this, all I could think about was the Mandalorian. You know, living by a set of creeds. You don't know who the Mandalorians are. It's a Star Wars kind of character from the, you know, it's fictional, of course, just so you know that, right? It's a fictional character from the planet of Mandalore, and they have a certain creed they live by, and every time they greet each other, they say, This is the way. This is the way. But friends, this, what he's described, is not the way of Christ. There is a way. It's Christ's way. And what he was describing in verses 17 through 19 is not the way. That's what he's saying here. But this is not the way you learned Christ. So the way of Christ, what does it look like? Well, he says, you learned Christ. Now, that's an interesting thing, is it? Not learned about Christ. You learned Christ. Now, what's the distinction there? I can, I can learn something about, let's say, um, Winston Churchill. I can read books, I can watch a movie, so I can learn about him, but I've never learned him. I've never spent time with him. I've never interacted with him. I can learn about Charles Simeon, one of my you know, old heroes. All right? As far as a preacher is concerned, I can learn about it. I can read stuff. I can read his sermons. But I've never actually sat down 
and had a relationship with Charles Simeon. And what's, what he's talking about here is you, as God's children, have learned Christ. You now have this relationship with Christ. And he goes on and he says, assuming that you have heard of him, that's a, talking about your conversion, your calling, and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. So you have this idea of learning, hearing, and teaching that is going on. This is what happens if you're a child of God. You are in this relationship, this intimate relationship with Christ. Paul says in Colossians, you're in him. And he is in you. There's something mystical and wonderful about that union. Well, someone says, well, I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, everyone has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ in that sense. You either reject him or you embrace him or you're walking with him, right? I mean, it's, you're, it's a personal relationship. That's the idea here. You and I, if we're God's children, have this relationship. Now, having said that, he presents to us now out of that a, a, a wonderful picture of the way of salvation. And notice what it says here, verse 22. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt to the deceitful desires. Ah, it's back in, chapter, in, in verses 17 through 19, right? You're putting off the old man, old self to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. This is what has happened to you in your conversion. The old man has been put off. Deadness has been removed. Alienation has been removed. Futility has been removed. Your mind now has been renewed by the Spirit of God. You've been made alive in Christ. You're reconciled to Him through the power of the Holy Spirit. And you're now, you've been put on the new man. God's adopted you. You are His workmanship. You are God's church, His called out ones. But in all of that, remember... That we are these things for a purpose, for good works, and to make known the wisdom of God. These are all, all instructions that Paul gives the Ephesian church. But you have this way of salvation. In, in your conversion, the old man has been removed, the new man has been put on, and there's been renewing of the spirit of your mind, which is this new life that we now have in Christ. So it's a wonderful picture. But this picture then is also for us a pattern of, sal of sanctification. Because you put off the old self, you are renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on. So, so this picture becomes now this pattern that we are to live by as we are seeking to pursue Christ-likeness. So that's why we move now to this third section where we're saying, okay, we, we, we stopped doing something. We're, we're starting now our, our new life in Christ, this way of Christ. But now, as we get to our progressive sanctification, we need to continue living life like a saint. And this is where we live, friends. Based on what we just said, we need to live our lives continuing now to live in this way of sanctification. And there's five exhortations that he gives here to teach us what progressive sanctification looks like. It's not an exhaustive list, but it's a list that gives us enough illustration to show us what walking with the Lord to become more and more like Christ looks like. Let me begin at verse 25 
And here's the first one. Truth must replace falsehood. This is what it says. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Now, Paul is saying, and he's speaking to a context of people where, where um, lying was rampant. That the culture was full of kind of the, the practice of lying. It was seen not necessarily as a bad thing, but as a tool to accomplish what you want. And friends, lying is all around us, isn't it? Now just pause and think about lying as far as advertising is concerned, politics, and sports, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, here's one for you, right? Use XYZ toothpaste, and your teeth will shine so brightly that you will be a magnet that draws people to love you. Your whole life will change if you use this toothpaste. Is it true? How many of you brush your teeth this morning? Okay, maybe I shouldn't ask that question. Um, <laughs> but you brushing your teeth now, oh, people are going to love me now. You know, they're going to love me. No, it's, it's a tool. It's a tool to get you to buy something. It's not true. You can use the toothpaste and people still don't like you. It's the real world, all right? How about this one? This berry that is only found on a secluded island in the Philippines will restore your body to perfect health. And we have developed this pill that has taken all the nutrients out of this berry and everything. You're just gonna, the, the, the weight is just going to fall right off your body. And it doesn't. What happens is the money falls out of my wallet. It's a lie. How about this one? This one piece of exercise equipment is all you will ever need. And they should send you with that piece of equipment posters that you can put up when it's time for your garage sale. Because you know you're going to be selling it on. It's a lie. You vote for me and I will promise to lower your taxes, reduce the price of gas, give you free health care, and end global warming. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll vote. It's lies. Now, friends, just we could go on and on. Lies are all around us, right? But here's what God wants us to do. He wants us to speak the truth, not to lie. Now, just here's a practical illustration of this on us. Someone comes to you and they're asking you a question at church. Hey, how are you doing? And this is what's bouncing around in your head. My marriage is so painful right now. My children are not behaving well. I am not sure that we will be able to pay the mortgage. The car needs new tires. My toilets keep backing up. We have lots of spiders in the house, and I need a shoulder to cry on, but you want an answer. I'm fine. Things are going well. Thank you for asking. We are the body of Christ, friend. Paul is speaking to the body of Christ and saying, look, stop lying. Speak the truth. And if there's a place where you can speak the truth, it should be the body of Christ. And when you don't speak the truth, it undermines the health of the body and renders it dysfunctional. 
So we must replace lying by putting on speaking the truth. It's something we put on. Secondly here, righteous anger must replace sinful anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. By the way, this is not a verse to quote when you're in a heated argument with your spouse. Just want you to know that. There is such a thing as righteous anger. Right? The, the quickest illustration of that, of course, is Jesus who's in the, in the temple and he's chasing out the money changers. We see him angry, but his anger is just because they had defiled the temple, turned it into a marketplace when it should be a house of prayer. And if we're seeking to imitate God or be like Christ, we will, uh, we will sometimes get angry at things that offend God. There's a righteousness. We should be angry at abortion taking place. We should be angry of the death of these innocent little children. We should be angry that people can just run into stores and just grab stuff and take it away, smashing windows and all this kind of stuff without having any real ramifications. Why? Because it's unjust behavior. I'm not blaming anyone in particular. I'm just saying there's some things that we should be angry about. We should be angry at sin. But here's the problem. Our righteous anger doesn't last too long. Why? Because we are all still struggling with sin. And your righteous anger is tainted by sin, which then makes it sinful anger. However, there are some people in history who I think have channeled their anger Someone like a William Wilberforce who channeled his anger at slavery to bring about emancipation. Martin Luther, for example, channeled his anger at the, the doctrinal error and the resulting bondage of the people which birthed this revolution, brought about the Reformation. We're thankful for a righteous anger channeled for good. But just be careful because sinful anger is still present. So we, we must replace sinful anger with a righteous anger, and we do that in a couple of ways. Number one, by dealing with it quickly. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity for the devil. All right? There's more we could say there, but we're trying to show you now this picture of progressive sanctification. Generosity must replace stealing. What do you do with someone who is a thief? From a biblical perspective, what does it mean to put off and to put on when someone has a habit of stealing? Well, people steal in all sorts of different situations. Uh, we can borrow from a well-meaning people and we don't repay them. All right? we, 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 we underreport on our income tax. We uh, we find tools in our garages or containers in our pantries that have a name written with a sharpie on them that's not ours. Right? And sometimes we steal like from our employer, um, from our schools, whatever. We, 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 we can steal. We, and we, people do. And if we're honest, there are times that we are tempted to do that or maybe we do that. 
when is a thief no longer a thief? Is it when he stops stealing? Let me, a ridiculous question, but it makes the point. When is a murderer not a murderer? When he stops murdering? No, he's murdered. (laughs) Just happens to be today, he's not. Okay, we're talking about habits of behavior. You, you have a habit of stealing. And what, what Paul is going to give us here is instruction about how to stop it. And notice what he says. He gives four real helpful things. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone he needs. Number one, stop stealing. Secondly, labor. This person doesn't know what it means to labor. This is one of the problems with people who steal. They don't don't have the value of hard work and the fruit of hard work. Do honest work with your hands so that you can learn what it means to actually put in a day's work. And not just that, when you've created whatever it is you've created, give it away. This is his antidote. Put off stealing, replace it with generosity. Next one. Edifying language must replace corrupt language. Corrupt talk here, it's like fruit that is is rotting. It certainly includes obscene language, but it's not limited to that. It's, It's language or words that can rip people apart or tear them down. It's said that Augustine hung this saying on on his dining room wall. He who speaks evil of an absent man or woman is not welcome at this table. He's getting at something. Friends, it's easy to let corrupt talk come out of our mouths, but it's much harder to think about saying something that will build another person up. One is passive. One is natural. The other is active. We have to think about doing it. We have to be mindful of it. We put off the urge to give people a piece of our minds, and we put on actively working to say things that will encourage and build up those who are around us. So you have this corrupt talk. You also have this edifying language here that builds up, that's appropriate for the occasion So there are times when maybe this isn't the best time to have this conversation. You get that? They give grace to those who hear. In other words, this is is helpful. This is encouraging. They're constructive words that seek to encourage a person to do what is right. So the point here is that you're, you're putting off one thing and you're putting on something else. The putting off is difficult because the sin happens so easily, but the put on is also incredibly difficult because you have to have the mind of Christ to be able to then put on rightly and thoughtfully. And the last one here is this. Kindness must replace animosity. And we're taking into account here verses 31 and 32. Let's read verse 31. And just follow along with me if you would please. He lists a number of things. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Let's just say you're driving down the road today. It's windy, it's rainy, lots of people are driving kind of crazy and you end up in a fender bender with someone. It was clearly 
their fault and you're in the car and you were supposed to be somewhere and you're you're going to be late and you're supposed to be providing some food or whatever right and so already your your feelings start to grow right now it, we don't typically kind of sit there in the car and say to ourselves all right how am i going to express my anger right now should i i think i'll choose bitterness that's a good idea i'll do bitterness so I'm, well, maybe today I'll do clamor. That's like fist fighting. Well, maybe I'll, maybe slander is the way I should go. No, these are things that happen out of nowhere because we, 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 they're coming out of our flesh. They just kind of like rise up in us. And rah, rah, it's there. I don't know how to spell what I just said, but it's, it's out there, okay? It's natural. You don't have to think about it. It's passive. It happens. This is the nature of the flesh that rises up in us. It's passive. We don't have to typically work at it. It's already there working its, its way. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to have you. But then look at verse 32. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. That's like saying, all right, I've got to be tenderhearted. I've got to do this now. <laughs> this is hard. I've got to be something. I've got to put this on. This is hard work. Moving it over here. Tender, I will forgive you. Boom. All right. It's not natural. It's hard work. It takes effort. So it's not passive. It's active. And friends, I, I'm walking through Ephesians 4 to help us see that God is calling us to see that there's an old life that he's drawn us out of that we need to stop living in. And we need to start living like saints because he has clothed us in his righteousness. He's put off the old man. He's put on the new man. He's re renewed us in the spirit of our minds. And now we continue on as we encounter sinful habits and thinking and ways that we do things that are clear in Scripture, violate God and His commands. And instead, we, we replace them with godly responses, godly habits. But there's a warning. If we seek to pursue, put off, and put on simply from Verse 22, we put off one habit and we replace it with another habit. We might just become Pharisees. And what needs to happen is verse 23. So go back to verse 23. What does it say? And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, what you're putting on is not simply a replacement, but it is something that God has been working in your heart about. It's clear this is what you should do because the Holy Spirit is showing you. He's teaching you. He's shaping your heart so that you want now to do this thing. Not simply as a replacement, but as part of your growing, progressive walk with Him. This is what he's called us to, friends. This is discipleship living. And most of the stuff takes place right here. You're sitting today 
you're going to respond to what's being said, a song, a sermon, whatever it might be. Your heart is, is responding in some way, shape, or form. You're either saying, you know what, I'm going to listen, I'm going to hear, I'm going to absorb it. You're saying, nah, I like my old life, I like my habits, stay away from them. And I just want to remind you, you are a child of God. If you've embraced Him as your Lord and Savior, you have become a saint. And He expects you to live like a saint and to continue to live like a saint. And, friends, this is critical. Now, a couple of things I want us to see as we bring this to a close. Number one, I want you to notice 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Have nothing to do with irreverent, irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That word train is gymnazo, gymnasium is where we get the word from. The implication of that is this, that it requires work. Spiritual sweat. So progressive sanctification is a call to diligent, intentional, spiritual sweat that will steadily and incrementally move us toward maturity in Christ. So it means I need to be intentional. I need to be disciplined. I need to be patient. I need to be connecting with others who can encourage me in this spiritual exercise. It's not something you just do in isolation. It's something you do primarily in your own heart, but you encourage one another to be doing these things. Therefore, the progressive sanctification is active, not passive. This is something that you have to work towards. It requires humility, honesty, obedience, and faith. And we trust the process because this is the process that God is calling us to. If you want to say Jesus is our life coach and He's with us every day, alerting us by virtue of the Holy Spirit through His Word, hey, you, you know this? Did you notice how you got angry at this particular situation? What are you going to do with that? Because that's old man stuff. And I called you to something more. And we're like, okay, Lord. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was wrong of me, Lord. Help me to see what I did and why I did it. And to then respond in a way that would honor and glorify you and would be respectful of others. Friends, we press on to pursue godliness, to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness, to pursue, pursue uh, maturity to pursue being made complete. Let's finish up with Colossians 1, 28 and 29. This is our church's verse. You may not know it. This is what we've chosen as part of our, our central passion. We proclaim Him, that's Christ, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. In other words, the Word is, is going to be what shapes our warning and our teaching that we may present everyone what? Mature in Christ. This is, this is the goal of the leadership. This is the goal of the church. This is what Paul says now he does. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
As a pastor, this is what I want to see happen in you. And, and I and Dennis commit to verse 29. Our elders commit to verse 29 because we want to see verse 28 happen in your life. It's not easy. Requires work. We need patience. We need humility. We need help. We need guidance. We need God to give us a vision and a passion for these things in our own hearts. This is discipleship living, friends. This is the way. Lord, help us to grab a hold of what you've called us to. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Knowing that you are at work, even in our work. And that you require our effort to pursue becoming more and more like your Son, Jesus Christ. Now Lord, may we not do this in a legalistic fashion. May we not do this in such a way that it it feels like such a heavy burden of drudgery. That way we do it in such a way that we are walking intentionally with delight, communing in your word, communing with you, allowing your word to speak to us, allowing the body of Christ ministering to us, placing us in situations where we can grow and develop in various areas of struggle in our life. Lord, we ask for your help. We ask for for your counsel. We ask for your guidance. But Lord, we also ask that we would be renewed in our thinking and our passion and our desires to be intentional about this. That as a church, we can keep prodding one another toward Christlikeness. Thank you, Lord, for being patient with us, for growing us, Lord, for giving us a vision of what that might look like. Knowing that one day, as we step from this life into eternity, we will be like Him. But Lord, we are Your church. So Lord, help us to take this seriously. We ask in Your precious holy name. Amen.